0: You've probably heard the phrase taking center stage, uh, meaning to hold the the spotlight, to command the attention. On Sunday afternoons after church, let me be clear on that part, after church, uh, in my household, the Dallas Cowboys take center stage. And this year, this year, we're seven and two. So I feel pretty good about saying the Dallas Cowboys take center stage. We're about to be eight and two after we take care of those pesky chiefs this weekend which if you're a Chargers fan, you should be happy about. But center stage means it's got the focus. It's got the attention, right? Well, just like center stage in a, a theater, our lives really only have one spot for center stage. And that spot should be held by Jesus Christ. And he's the one that so far in John's gospel has been in the shadows, not in the sense that he's embarrassed or ashamed, but just in the sense that, It's not quite his time to emerge and to step into the spotlight, to to take center stage during this period of his earthly ministry. And yet in John chapter 5, as we're going to see this morning, all of that really begins to change. So look at John chapter 5 with me, if you would. And let's begin in verse 1. It says, after this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Well, Jesus had been where? He'd been up in Galilee because he'd just come from Samaria, and he had previously just been in the Judean wilderness baptizing. So he's in Galilee, he's there, he heals the official son, which we looked at last week, and now he's going back to Jerusalem. And he's going up to Jerusalem, even though he's going south geographically, because topographically, it's elevated, right? Jerusalem is up on a a hill, it's the city on a hill, it's Mount Zion. So he's going up to Jerusalem for this feast. Now we don't know which feast this is, because the text doesn't tell us. So we can speculate, but it really doesn't do us a whole lot of good. But he goes back to Jerusalem nonetheless, which is going to put him back in proximity with, as John so often refers to them, the Jews, the opposition to Jesus, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders who didn't like what Jesus was doing and didn't like the crowds that he was amassing. And that'll certainly play a factor in our text. Verse 2 now, there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gates, the sheep gate, why? Well, because that's where the people would bring their sheep to the, the temple mount to sacrifice. So there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. So this is a, a, an image taken from the, the model, the scale model of Jerusalem that's there in the, at the, the Israeli museum that you visit if you ever come with us on a trip to Israel. Uh, And you get to see it laid out. And it's a scale model of the city as it would have looked at the time of of Jesus. So this is what the Pool of Bethesda, uh, from our our best estimates, would have looked like at this time. You see the five roofed colonnades. Uh, There's there's four, and then there's the one down the the middle as well that Jesus is referring to here. In fact, if you go there today, you can see the the archaeological remnants in the, the excavation site of these pools. It's right near what's now referred to as as St. Anne's Cathedral, which is a Crusader-era church that was built there. And you can go and you can see and you can look at these ruins and say, this is exactly where this event took place. And so we can go and see it and witness it and see, okay, these are the pools of Bethesda. But it says of these pools, as we continue in the text, in these, verse 3, lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed which introduces a question for us as to, okay, well, why? Why are they there? Well, if you'll look in your ESV text, what, what do you find after verse three in your ESV text? You find verse five, okay? So as we're teaching my twins to count right now, we're teaching them to count one, two, three, four, five. Um, so the ESV editors need to go back to kindergarten, yes? No, they don't. Uh, why is verse four not there? And why did they intentionally not go to to verse four instead of jumping to verse five? Well, verse four is not there because some of our earliest manuscripts don't contain verse four. Some of our, our strongest manuscripts don't contain verse four. And so rather than putting it in, the ESV editors chose to leave it out. Now, was that the right decision? I don't know. I don't know. I do think that it's probably not original to the text. However, when you look at the Holman Christian Standard Bible or you look at the New American Standard Bible, you'll find that verse four is in the text. However, it's bracketed or it's italicized to communicate the fact that, hey, you know what? This is a, a, a disputed verse. It may not have been in the original. But what verse four says in the manuscripts that it has, in case you're wondering, this is the Holman Christian Translation. It says this, because an angel, why were all the, the invalids there? Why were all the lame, paralyzed, and, and sick there? It says, because an angel would go down into the pool, the pools of Bethesda, from time to time and stir up the water. Then the first one who got in after the water was stirred up, recovered from whatever ailment he had. We'll talk about textual criticism when we get to chapter eight in uh, John's gospel, because you have a much larger section there that is probably not original to the gospel, but when we're looking at this verse and and we're asking ourselves, okay, so why was it added in latter manuscripts? Well, it was added in latter manuscripts because for John, as John is writing this, remember, this is is essentially common knowledge. People understood this. If you were in the region, you understood the pools of Bethesda had an association of being uh, pools that were were known for their healing powers. In fact, this carried on past the time of Christ. There was eventually a, a secular Uh, pagan practice of worshiping the gods of healing, the god Asclepius and Serapis, who were the Greek gods of of healing. And there were idols, statues, set up to them here at these pools because there was a a mystical belief that these pools could provide healing and restorative uh, properties. And most likely what that came from was the fact that the pools would have been tinted a, a reddish hue because the springs, some of the springs that fed them, though they were primarily fed by the the Solomon's pools, the reservoirs, there were also underground springs which fed them that were high in iron content. So the mineral deposits in these pools led some to believe that they had a healing property about them. And when those springs would be active, the waters would bubble up, much like you would see in a hot tub or a jacuzzi. The waters would would bubble and, and look like they're being stirred up by an angel of the Lord, And the rumor was the first person in the water was was healed. Well, I don't think anybody laying in these colonnades was getting healed at this time. And I think this was all a grasping at straws. I think this was all a hope that, well, this time it'll be different and I'll be the one. I think this was full of people who knew someone whose brother's dog breeders' sister's best friend got healed 20 years ago at the pool of Bethesda because he was the first one into the waters. You see, it's, it's a group of people that are desperate at this time, right? This is a group of people that have nowhere else to turn. In fact, the one man in verse five that Jesus singles out, it says one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. This word invalid doesn't necessarily mean paralytic. It could have been simply that he had a disease or a sickness that had caused his muscles to atrophy to the point that he couldn't stand up. And he's been here for almost four decades, coming back to this pool time and time and time again, even though as he will bear his own, t- his own testimony here, n- no one is there with him. So what keeps him coming back? Well, what keeps him coming back is he has his faith and his trust in the pools of Bethesda. He's thinking, man, if, if only I can be the first one into the waters, then I'll be healed and my life will be great because I'll no longer have this physical infirmity. Look at verse six, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, that's an important clarifying statement that John makes. Jesus, in his divine omniscience, knows that this man has been here for 38 years in this condition. And he said to him, do you want to be healed? Do you wish to be made well? The sick man answered him, verse seven, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool. When the water is stirred up and while I'm going, into an, going down, another steps down before me. So Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. As Jesus has done so many times already in John's gospel, he drives to a deeper reality than what appears to be there at the, the initial interaction. John chapter 3 with Nicodemus, I tell you the truth, unless a man is what? Born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Nicodemus fails to grasp the deeper reality. John chapter 4, the woman at the well, he says, look, you come to this well to draw water, but if you knew who it was who was speaking to you, you would have asked him for water and he would have given you living water and you would have never had to come back to this well to draw again. And the woman says, sir, give me this water again, missing the deeper reality. And here you have Jesus ask a man who's been an invalid for almost 40 years, do you wish to be made well? Does that question strike you as Captain Obvious? Uh, no, I'm good. I'll, I'll, I'll keep coming back here. But Jesus was asking a deeper question A question that didn't necessarily have to do with his physical infirmity, but a question that had to do with his greater issue, which was his spiritual infirmity. His alienation from God that had to do with his sinfulness. But men, as we open this scene, we find this man, this invalid in a hopeless and helpless state, unable to deliver himself. The world had abandoned him. His family had abandoned him. He had no one there, as he says, no one is here to help me down into the water. There was nothing that he could offer, nothing that he could pay, nothing that he could do. There was nothing about him that was any more worthy of healing than anyone else there amongst the colonnades, nothing that would merit Jesus' attention or Jesus' favor. And yet Jesus set his affection, his attention on this man. And unlike the pools of Bethesda, Jesus had the power to actually do something about his state. Well, man, all of us at one point in time in our lives have been this man. Every single one of us have been just like him, powerless to help ourselves, completely incapable, unworthy, with no merit to offer the Lord to say, here, I'm a good investment for you. And yet God set his affection on us. And unlike all of the things that we've put our faith in at previous times in our lives, God actually has the power to deliver us. Point number one this morning is this, praise Jesus for his power to deliver. Worship and praise him for his power to deliver. Because again, we were this man. Romans 5 makes that plain. For at the right time, Christ died for thee, what? Ungodly. In fact, Paul says we were weak, ungodly, sinful enemies of God in Romans 5. In Ephesians 2, what were we? We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Helpless, hopeless. For me, personally, I was a self-righteous young man when the Lord saved me. I was a, a youth group student leader. You've heard of the teacher's pet. I was the pastor's pet. I was prideful. I was judgmental. I was blind. And I thought because... I had gone to a private Christian school and initially when I was growing up, my dad was a pastor and then I went to this church and I got to serve on the student leadership team at the church and then I got to lead worship for the student youth group at the church and all the while, I was a hellbound sinner and I had no clue because I was trusting in the Bethesda of my self-righteousness. All of us have are Bethesda's that we trusted in before Jesus. And even now we're tempted to go back and and trust in again. Maybe it's career. You think, you know, my life will, will be fine as long as my career is good. As long as I close the next deal, as long as I get the next promotion, as long as I take my company to the next level, as long as my 401k is lined up and I have my retirement plan laid out and I know how long I'm going to work and things go well and inflation doesn't tank everything, then everything is fine and this is my Bethesda. I will be good as long as this comes through for me. Coupled with that so often is money. As long as I have enough money. And maybe you're on the Bitcoin train now. As long as Bitcoin fluctuates up and not all the way down, then, then, then I'm good to go. It's going to stabilize. There's no inflation there. We're, we're good. As, as long as I can trust something, that I'll have something, that I can pay for things, well, well then I'm, I'm, I'm okay. I feel good. I feel secure. Maybe it's marriage. Maybe your confidence, your Bethesda is in your marriage being good. And you look at your wife and you think, man, we've got a good relationship. We love each other. We have date nights. Our sex life is great. Everything is going well in marriage. Marriage is so good and we love our marriage. And, and, and your Bethesda is your marriage. You feel like, I'm okay because my marriage is good. Good. Maybe it's your kids, grandkids. You think, well, as long as they're good, then I'm okay. As long as they're doing well academically, as long as they're developing, as long as they're healthy, as long as they're successful, then, then you know what, then I can be okay. Then I'm, then I'm satisfied. As long as I've done everything I could do for my kids to make sure that they're successful in life. Maybe it's sex. Sex. Hey, as long as my sexual cravings and desires are satisfied, then life is good. I'm fine. In fact, these, this next one as well, alcohol, you could throw drugs in there too. Uh, sex, drugs, and alcohol, so often we turn to those men as, uh, as a, a, a drug to escape the problem that this man was facing every day when he was laying in the colonnades at Bethesda, and that is that he had nothing to hope in other than this pool. And probably deep down inside, he knew that this pool was never going to do anything for him. And as we chase some of these other Bethesdas up there prior to the, the last two and realize that they won't satisfy, so often we will turn to things like sex, drugs, and alcohol to numb it and to, to allow us to escape the reality that we don't want to face on a daily basis because we're trusting in things that can't deliver. Self-righteousness can't deliver you. Your morality, being a good person, cannot deliver you. Men walking an aisle, and what I mean by this is is some have put their entire confidence in where they stand with Jesus because in a moment of of emotional uh, euphoria with music playing in a large crowded room, you stood up and you walked an aisle but there was never a transaction between you and God where you exchanged your faith in Christ for the righteousness of God. There was never genuine faith in repentance and you look back at your life and you see that your life has not really looked any different since that moment that there's not really been any transformation, that you look pretty similar to what the world looks like, that your life is marked by and plagued by besetting sins, and that yet you show up at church every week because, you know, you you still want to hold on to this identity that you're a Christian because you must be because you walked an aisle 20 years ago. Similarly, baptism can hold that pitfall for us. Well, I know I'm fine with the Lord because I was baptized. And because this pastor baptized me, so because this pastor baptized me, then that's where my conf- I'm, I must be good with the Lord because he wouldn't have baptized me if I wasn't. Man, at the end of the day, these are all unable to deliver us from our sins. Unable to address our greatest need. Just like that pool of Bethesda was unable to address the greatest need of this man. Or even his surface need, which was the fact that he couldn't walk. Man, these Bethesdas can't help us either, but Jesus can. We live in a world where men wake up every single day and they drag themselves to these Bethesdas, these pools that can't deliver us. And we know who can. And it's Jesus. He's different. And so he's worthy of our praise and adoration. But I want you to think about, if you had been lame for 40 years and here comes this stranger looks at you, says, do you want to be made well? And you say, "Uh, yes, that would be great. And he speaks to you, the way Jesus pulling back the curtain on his deity there, speaks to you, and immediately everything, your muscles on atrophy, if that's the word, I don't know, but they're back, you can stand up, there's no learning curve, you don't have to go to rehab to figure out how to walk again, you're just, you're good. What would your response be? Let's look and see what this man's response was. Verse nine, and at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now, and this is important for where we're going, that day was the what? The Sabbath. Mm. So the Jews, verse 10, there's our, our friends, the Jews. The Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. Man, talk about missing the forest for the trees. This guy's been an invalid for 40 years and doubtless these men these Jews knew who this man was. If you're going back to the same place for 40 years, the people that hang out around town are gonna know who you are. And so they see the man walking and their first response is, you're breaking the Sabbath. But was he really? Well, What are the Sabbath laws about work? Exodus 20.10. The seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, and on it you shall not do any work, okay? There's the, the command there. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant. Your livestock or the sojourner who's within your gates, okay? And then Leviticus 233 Six days, work shall be done, but on the seventh day, it's a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It's a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. Those are the... Primary biblical commands about working in on the Sabbath and and the prohibition against working on the Sabbath. Notice what's not done here is a laundry list of a definition of what work is on the Sabbath. But don't worry, don't worry, because the, the Jewish rabbis formulated the Talmud, which is the oral tradition where they said, we're going to give you, um, how about 39 different categories of what's considered work on the Sabbath? Because clearly, this is what Jesus meant when he said, you shall do no work on the Sabbath. We're not going to go through all 39, but if you're curious, uh, number one, no gardening at, at all on the Sabbath. So if, if that's your bag on Saturdays, you like to get up and spend some time in the garden, you're breaking the Sabbath. I hate to break it to you men, but... You've got a problem with the Jews at this point. Uh, don't clean the fruit. Grab an apple out of the fridge. You're eating it with the pesticides on. Because if you wash it off in the sink, hey, you're working. You're breaking the Sabbath. And clearly, that's what God had in mind when he said, do no work on the Sabbath. Uh, baking, no baking. So if it's your birthday on Sunday have your, or on Saturday, have your wife bake the cake on Friday. Because if she bakes it on, on Saturday, then your wife is, is breaking the Sabbath. Uh, weaving or separating two threads. Don't do it. Don't tie, in fact, here you go, specifically. Don't tie a knot. You also can't untie a knot. So get your slip-ons ready for for the morning because if you're planning on wearing tie shoes on the Sabbath, then um, you're a, a Sabbath breaker and a heathen and you've got major issues with the, the Jews. Uh, you cannot write or erase more than, than one letter. If you write two letters, you're breaking the Sabbath. So you can write a letter to someone that just says I, period, or A, period, and that's it. It's all, but make sure you get it right the first time because if you erase it, you're done. You can't, you can't go back. You got to wait until tomorrow and then write it. You can't hammer on the Sabbath. So the honey-do list, those are going to have to wait until Sunday because Saturday, you can't do it. So there, there you go, man. If you want that out for your, your wives <laughs> tomorrow morning when she says, Hey, would you mind hanging these pictures? You can say, I can't, I can't do it. Because the the Talmud, the Babylonian Talmud tells me I can't do that. And she's going to look at you like you're from Mars. and, And you'll just shrug and say, I'm sorry. It's just, it's the oral tradition. And then here's the one that applies to our circumstance, transferring a load from one place to another. The Talmud said, if you carry something from one place to another, you're working and you're breaking the Sabbath. Specifically, here's what the Talmud says. It says, one who carries out a large loaf of bread into the public grounds is culpable. You're guilty. How big is this loaf? Well, if two persons do this together, if you ever seen two people carry a loaf of bread, (laughs) like one loaf, I can't imagine the size of this. If two persons do this together, they're both innocent, provided it could be done by one of them. So you go to Costco on Saturday, you and your wife need to carry the loaf of bread together, okay, is what it's saying because then you're not breaking the Sabbath because you're both sharing the load that one of you could do, so you're not really working. But, you know, if this is one of those massive loaves of bread that requires two people to carry, you can't buy it from Costco. And if anywhere's gonna sell it, Costco's gonna sell that loaf, right? But man, I just, I point all this out so that you you begin to to understand the, the ridiculousness of what's going on. This man's actually not breaking the Sabbath law. Jesus would not have commanded him to break the Father's commandments. He's standing up and he's carrying his mat. They're missing the whole point. Look at verse 11. The man, he answers them. You're breaking the Sabbath. He goes, yeah, the guy who healed me said, take up your bed and walk. Thinking maybe that that'll be the light bulb that goes off with him. They're like, oh yeah, you're right. Wow, that's pretty amazing. Okay, well, we'll let you slide this one time. Not so. They said, who's the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Where is he? We want to take a word with him. Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn. And there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him. So after this interaction, the the Jews, they, they go on their way. This man is there. Jesus comes back to the man now and finds him again and said, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. It's a difficult statement there from Jesus there's a lot of different views out there and I can't pound the pulpit on this one and say, thus says the Lord, but men, I will say that the plain reading of the text implies that this man's ailment may have been a result of sin in his life. Now, let me be clear that that does not apply across the board to every situation of physical suffering or ailment. However, there are times when God will physically afflict us in response to our sin. And Jesus goes to this man and says, Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you, implying that what has happened to you may be a result of your sin. Again, is that 100% the answer? No, not necessarily. However, I will say this the man's response doesn't help him here because it says that the man left Jesus and went and found the Jews himself and pointed the finger back at Jesus and said, That's your man. That's the guy who told me to carry my mat. So this, this man who's healed doesn't get it. I asked, what would your response be? After 40 years, what would your response be to the man who caused you to walk again? would it not be to, to cling to him, to follow him, to, to devote yourself to him and say, I want, I'm, I'm, I'm with you forever just out of sheer gratitude, and this man misses it. He goes back to the Jews and says, that's the guy. Don't come at me and call me a Sabbath breaker. He's your guy. You go after him. And the text says that the Jews began persecuting Jesus for breaking the Sabbath at that point. And our our, our second point this morning is when we realize everything that the Lord has done for us, it should cause us to devote ourselves to our deliverer. Jesus hasn't made us walk. He's just given us eternal life right? Which all the more should cause us to say, we're with you, Jesus. Forever and ever and ever, we are with you. Unlike this man who distances himself from the Lord. And yet, man, if we're honest, there are times that we can distance ourselves from the Lord. When a coworker asks us, hey, you're one of those Christians, aren't you? Do you really believe that there's only two genders? And we begin to soft pedal. Hey, what are you guys doing for Thanksgiving this week? We shift our focus. Or our neighbor comes up to us and says, hey, you're one of those Christians. Do you really, truly? I was reading this article. Do you seriously believe that marriage is only between a husband and a wife? That that people can't just love whoever they want to love. You don't really believe that, do you? Or do we do this when the world begins to tell us what we should or shouldn't preach about in our churches? Do we distance ourselves from the one who has done so much for us, the way that this man separated himself from Jesus? Thinking, I don't want to be called a Sabbath breaker. That's the guy who did it. Again, man, let's think about what has Jesus done for us lately. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now what? No condemnation for those who are in who? Christ Jesus. You're not in Christ Jesus, you've got all the condemnation. You're in Christ Jesus, you've got none of it. Why? Because of verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. You're free from the law of sin and death if you are in Christ Jesus. If you're not, you are condemned by the law of sin and death. Jesus has set us free from that. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is what? In Christ. If anyone is in Christ, is is in Christ Jesus, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. If you're not in Christ, you're not a new creation. If you are in Christ, he's made you a new creation. Galatians 3, 26, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. You've been adopted by God the Father in Christ. If you're not in Christ, if, if you don't have Jesus, you don't have adoption. And then one more, Ephesians two thirteen. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought nearby the blood of Christ you don't have Jesus you are alienated you are far from God but if you are in Christ what has Jesus done for you He has reconciled you to the father he's brought you near to the father is this enough for our devotion I I mean we would have asked this man look you 40 years we're lying by this pool He, he spoke to you now you can walk is this not enough for your devotion to him Well, the persecution ramps up against Jesus, verse 16. This is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath, okay? This context continues, which is why we're taking so, such a large chunk, because I want us to frame it under what's, with what's going on in this initial interaction, because what follows from here to verse 29 has everything to do with this concept of Jesus doing this on the Sabbath, because that's what draws the ire of the Jews in this situation. And this is what opens the door to Jesus, beginning to step into the spotlight, which is gonna ultimately lead to the cross. And so he interacts with the Jews and the Jews come to him and they're persecuting Jesus now going, how dare you do this and, and, and break the Sabbath? But Jesus says an amazing statement in verse 17. He says, my father is working until now and I am working. Okay, we read that and we go, But when Jesus read that, what he was implying is this. The Jews had a belief that the Father, though he rested from his creative activity on day seven, never actually truly rested from everything. Why? Because we're still here. See, if if God had rested from his sustaining work, where he holds everything together. Colossians 1:17 In Christ all things hold together. If God rests from that work, then creation is a 6-day experiment and nothing more. Because as soon as God stops holding all things together, everything dissolves. So the Jews had an understanding that God was always working. And that's okay because he's God. We can't always work because we are his creation. We are his creatures. We are to be dependent upon him. And one of the reasons why he instituted the Sabbath was to remind us that we need rest because we're not God. Jesus says, my father has been working until now, always, and I also am working. Jesus is saying, I am God. And the Jews understand that. Look at verse 18. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. So now it's not we're just going to persecute him. Now we're going to kill him. Why? Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself, what? Equal with God. Okay, Jesus isn't pulling punches anymore. This is no longer John chapter 2 when Mary comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, they're out of wine." And Jesus looks at her and says, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And even though his hour has not yet come, it is drawing near. John 17, his hour shows up. But at this point, the the hour is approaching and the conflict is ratcheting up. And all of this is part of the foreordained plan of God. Because this conflict between Jesus and the Jews, it's this very issue that we're reading about in John chapter 5 that is going to put Jesus on the cross. His identity and self-identification as God, which the Jews could not tolerate because they believed that it was blasphemous, but it wasn't blasphemous because it was truth. Look at verse 19. So Jesus said to them, "'Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise.'" If you ever have a conversation with a Muslim who's knowledgeable about the Gospels, knowledgeable about the Scriptures, they're going to point to this verse and say, see, Jesus himself didn't believe that he was equal to the Father because he admitted here that he can do nothing apart from the Father. All you need to do in that conversation is back up to chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, which we just covered, and say, look, no, Jesus is claiming to be equal with the Father, and even the Jews understood that. Well, so what he's he's saying in verse 19, he's saying this. uh, Jesus, as the God-man, possessed two wills. He had his human will, the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, Father, if there's any way for this cup to pass from me, let it be so. Yet not my human will, but your will, the divine will be done. Okay? And so what Jesus is saying in 519 is he's saying, I'm not going to go rogue. I'm, I'm not doing anything that's not in perfect harmony and unison with the divine will from the Father. The Father and I are one and we do everything in perfect accord with one another. I only do what the Father does. Why? Because I am one with the Father. Verse 20, for the Father loves the Son and has shown him all that he himself is doing and greater works than these he will show him so that you may marvel. Uh, Jesus here is saying, look, I have a unique, intimate relationship with the Father where he has told me things he has not told other people. And I will reveal those things to you as well. Why? Because I have that privileged position with the Father. What gives me that privileged position with the Father? Because I am also God. I am the Son. John 1, 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God, that is Jesus, who's at the Father's side, has made him known. He's exegeted the Father, right? That's the word there in the Greek. He's explained him. He's shown him to us. Well, what gives Jesus the ability to do that, the right to do that? Because he himself is God. And that's what he's driving at in John 5, 20 as well. Verse 21, for as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. As the father judges no one, he has given all judgment to the son. Giving life and judging life. Those are two acts that are reserved for who? God, right? And Jesus is saying, he's entrusted me with that. Why? Why? Because Jesus is God. It's dripping with the deity of Christ in John chapter five. Verse 23, he states it is about as plain as you can. That all may honor the son, worship, revere, consider valuable, attribute worth to the son just as they honor the father. You need to consider me, the son, as valuable and worthy as you consider the father is what he's saying here. In fact, if you don't, whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him truly truly I say to you whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life Jesus is saying I have the power in my words to grant eternal life he does not come into judgment but is passed from death to life truly truly I say to you an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the son of God and those who hear will live his voice will impart life that's a divine attribute for as the father has life in himself so the comparison again here he has granted the son also to have life in himself Verse 27, and he has also given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Uh, that would have caused emergency brakes to start firing left and right. That phrase, he is the son of man, context of judgment and authority would have caused them to go to this passage right here in their mind, Daniel chapter seven, verses 13 through 14. I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, the father, God, Yahweh, and was presented before him. And to him, to this son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. The Jews understood that this son of man was a God character, that this is God here in view. And Jesus claiming to be the son of man was a claim to deity here but look at what he says in verse 28. Do not marvel at this. You can imagine the jaws would have been just a gape at this point in time. They were concerned about a guy carrying his mat, and now here's a guy going, oh, I'm God. The jaws opened, the the fists clenched, the cheeks red with fury and anger that this carpenter from Nazareth would dare claim such audacious audacious things. But Jesus says, do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs are gonna hear his voice, my voice, and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Okay, Jesus is in the spotlight now. No more vague, ambiguous statements. He's making it plain. And he's setting up the road to the cross in John chapter 5. Toe to toe with the Pharisees and the religious leaders. And they understood what he's doing. They want to, what, kill him now as a result of this. But man, as we read this, it's a concept that we know all too well that Jesus is God. But we need to be reminded of the amazing reality that our Savior is. Is God Himself, not just a human being, right? Not not just somebody that that's militarily powerful or successful. I don't know if you remember. I, I do because it was the same day that I found out that we were going to have twins, but election day back in in uh, in 2016. No, twenty what what year is it? 2018. When was the Trump election? What? Come on, sixteen was it? Yeah, it was 16. Thank you. I was right the first time. How old are my kids? I don't know. Too many of them. But I remember it was the same day we found out we were having twins that we found out that Trump got elected. And my father-in-law said, what's more unlikely, that Trump got elected or that you guys are having twins? And honestly, we didn't know at the time. But I do remember this sense of relief that after the Obama administration, there was going to be a, a, a good guy, so to speak, in office, somebody more friendly to Christianity in the church, if I can put it that way without going any further than that. Men, if, if, if we get excited about a politician in office, how much more excited should we be about the fact that this is our Savior? He's God. He's God. Not some military general. Not somebody who's going to have a term limit. Jesus has no term limit as your savior. Because he's the eternal God. And as we think about that, as we think about this whole concept, that is, he's got the power to deliver us, which should cause us to worship him. He does and has delivered us, which should cause us to be devoted to him. And then finally, he's revealed himself as God to us, which should cause us finally to commit ourselves fully to him in submission. Point number three, commit yourself fully to Jesus as Lord. Because our Savior is God. We're never gonna need another Savior. We're never gonna need a deliverance greater than what he's already provided for us. And we're never gonna have to... that there's going to be a circumstance or situation that he can't overcome because our Savior is God. We are following the one worthy of the same honor as the Father, following the one who has the words of eternal life, following the one who will someday return as the judge of all mankind. He's worthy of our praise, he's worthy of our devotion, and he's worthy of our full surrender. And does your life honor the son? Is your marriage honoring Jesus right now? You say, well, how do do I do that? What does that look like? Ephesians 5 is a great place to start. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Are you loving your wife in a sacrificial manner? Are you loving your wife in a way that she is more like Jesus because of your love for her than she would be if she wasn't married to you? It's a way that you can honor the Lord in your marriage. Are you honoring the Lord, men, those of you with with kids at home still, in the way that you are parenting? There's a command from Paul to fathers. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Men, are you guilty of provoking your children to anger? Men when you discipline your children, are you disciplining them because they annoy you or because you care about their standing before God? Are you honoring Jesus men in your thought life? What you allowed to, to fill your mind. And I'm not just talking about impure or immoral thoughts. Certainly there's that arena, but I'm talking even about the, the anxious thoughts that we will entertain that turn into fear, that grips our hearts. When Jesus said, Hey, who of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his lifespan? Has Jesus honored men in your entertainment choices? What you watch, what you look at, what you scroll through on your, your phones, on your tablets? Is He Lord over that area of your life? Are you honoring Him with that area of your life? Is He honored in your workplace? how you interact with your coworkers, your employees, your employer. This is Jesus, and he's God, and he's worthy of this. I I wonder what the disciples were doing during all of this. Because they must have been sitting back just kind of watching. And imagine kind of leaning over going, can you believe this guy's on our team? Can you believe we get to follow this guy? Man, if they were that excited about Jesus, not even knowing half of it, how much more excited should we be about the fact that not that Jesus is on our team, but that we're on Jesus' team? Are you just as fired up to follow him as I'm sure in this moment they must have been almost 2,000 years ago? John says at the end of his gospel, John chapter 20, almost the end of his gospel, he says this. This is why I wrote. He said, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. Man, I want to ask, is it working? Are you bolstered in your confidence in who Jesus is after just five chapters in the gospel of John? I know I am. Four and a half chapters. We're not even through chapter five yet. I know I am. Does Jesus have center stage in our lives? There's a lot in this world competing for it. There's only one center stage of your life. There's only room for one in that position, in that place. My question is, who has it? Hopefully it's Jesus. Let's pray. God, we're thankful for Christ, thankful for salvation, thankful for deliverance, thankful that He is God, thankful that there's not a, a, a situation where we're going to need another Savior down the road. But even as the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 7:25, He ever lives to make intercession for us right now. We thank you for that reality. We pray that we would praise Him, devote ourselves to Him, and submit to Him as our Lord and follow Him all the days of our lives until You call us home to be with You. We pray in Jesus' name, Amen.